The reading today is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And it's on page 1,234, 1, 2, 3, 4, in your pew Bibles. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. as a way of life, and so bring joy to your heart and honour to your name. Amen. Have we got this right now? <laughs> I had it upside down before. I don't know what difference that would have made. <laughs> I, hope it's, I hope you can hear me at the back, can you? Because that's often a problem. I bet most of you have seen the episode of Morecambe and Wires with Andre Previn, where he plays a beautiful piece of music, and then Eric Morecambe plays it. But it doesn't sound quite the same, does it? And Andrew Previn says, you've got it all wrong, all the notes are wrong. And he says, no, it's all the right notes, but in the wrong order. <laughs> well, this church in Ephesus was doing all the right things, but with the wrong motive. And so instead of it sounding a beautiful sound in God's ears, he wasn't pleased at all. It brought him no pleasure. And therefore, in this letter of John, Jesus says, you've got to change. You're not doing it right. First, he lists all their virtues, and there are many. I'll just go through them. Their hard work, their perseverance, the fact they couldn't tolerate wicked people. They would persevered and endured hardships for his sake, and they'd not grown weary. To sum up, they were zealous, hardworking, and morally upright. Now you'd think that's a description of the perfect church. And I'm sure we'd be thrilled, wouldn't we, if someone described us like that? Wonderful. So what was wrong? Why did Jesus say if they didn't repent, 
they'd actually ceased to exist as a church. It was that bad. Well, we get the answer in verse 4. They had left their first love. Now, Paul had written to this church in Ephesus many years before, and he'd mentioned the need for love in everything that they did. I just want to read a few of the quotes from the letters to the Ephesians. That they might know the love of Christ, to be rooted and grounded in love, to show forbearance to one another in love, to speak the truth in love, to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another in love, to walk in love as Christ loved them. He said that all their actions should flow out of that love, but it hadn't happened. They were doing all the right things, but with the wrong motives, the right notes, but the wrong order. Any activity that's not prompted by love is worse than useless. Only the love of Jesus in our hearts can honor God and draw people into the kingdom. So the question we're going to look at today is how can we continually experience that love in our hearts so that everything we do flows out of that? And I thought of four different things. This is what we're going to look at. Some of the causes of a wavering heart, the need to center everything on Jesus, how to keep our love fresh year after year, and the result of bringing heartfelt worship into our everyday lives. So let's look at the first one, causes of a wavering heart. And I've picked out three. I'm sure there are many, many more. The first one is when we have compartments and our Christian life is one compartment. Church, Jesus, Bible reading, that's part of our life. And then we have another part that might be our work, our pleasures, our friendships, and none of them affect each other. They're all separate. And for years, that's how I lived. I had my spiritual life, but it didn't affect anything else. They were all in compartments. Another cause of drifting away from God is when we're ruled by the flesh, when we willfully choose our own way, have no desire to please him. When David and I did a youth group in Carlisle many years ago, there was one young man that I still remember saying, nobody's going to tell me what to do, and that included God. It was his life. He was going to run it. It's so easy to be enticed along wrong paths when we have that sort of attitude. It's my life. The third thing I thought of, and that's the most common, is when we just drift. We don't realize, but perhaps we forget to read our Bible for a few days, we forget to pray, other things come in, and we don't even realize that we've drifted. This happened to me, again, years ago, and I had no idea I drifted. I was still going through the motions. And I had a letter from a friend. And she said something about the love of Jesus. And she was going on about Jesus. And I cried because I realized I'd lost that love. I was just going through the motions. I had no idea it had happened. But it can happen even when we're still coming to church, still going through all those motions. It happened to the Ephesians. They didn't know their love had gone and I just thank that friend, that it was her letter full of the love of Jesus that pulled me up sharp. And I thought, 
I've drifted a long, long way and I had to come back. We need to recognize our tendency to drift away from God. I don't know if any of you play bowls, and I never have, but I believe there's a bias in the bowl, is that right? And you try and go straight, and as as you go like that, it goes off the other way. Well, we have something called sin, which automatically draws us away from God. All the time draws us away. And we need God to help us to keep on line, to keep going on with him, so we don't drift there's a line of an, I say an old, old hymn, which many of us may know. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We need God's help, but also there are things we can do to make sure we don't wander off, that we stay on course, that our, our love stays strong and firm. I thought of several different things that I was going to share today. And I suddenly thought, no, that puts us into bondage. You say, you must do this, you must do that, must do that, then you'll keep on course. No, no, I'm just saying one thing, and that is put Jesus at the centre of our lives. Before I explain that, I would like to say we have to make sure first that he's in our lives to start with. Do you know you can be a believer in Jesus? You can go all three alive believing in Jesus, believing that he died for sin, believing that he brings eternal life, and never actually have a relationship with him. There are many in our churches, I don't know if there are any here, say, I'm a believer, but do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you know that Jesus is in your heart, in your life? You may have asked him in, you may just have been born in a Christian family and it's happened naturally. But we all need to be able to say, Jesus lives in me. And then we need to make that decision. He's going to be the centre. He's going to control my life. It belongs to him, not to me. So we need to have a time when we deliberately choose to put him first. Choose to let him take control. I'd been a Christian for years before I came to this point where I made that choice and the difference that it made. The first thing was that I was overwhelmed with his love. I just felt such love saturated in it, bathed in it. It was just wonderful. And the second thing I was aware of was how nice everybody else had become. I was, I was so, so it, I loved everybody. They were all so nice. And I'd never noticed it before. Of course, now his love helped me to see with his eyes. That's how he saw everybody. And so I started to love people because his love showed me what they were really like. They were all precious in his sight. Afterwards, someone said to me, oh, you've been filled with the Spirit. That's what's happened to you. But it happened as I let Jesus be central. We must come to the point where he's not at the edge of our lives. He's the center. He's everything to us. That's the essence of worship. When he pours his love into our hearts, we respond to him, and then that love overflows to other people. But we can't rely on an experience to keep us moving on. We can still drift after going through that. So how can we keep fresh year after year after year after year? Um, I'm probably one of the oldest ones here. And, and so it's important, whatever age you get to, that it's still fresh, it's still strong. 
And the thing I thought was to bring him into everything that we do. Refer all decisions to him. Talk everything over with him. Share all situations, all emotions. If we enjoy something, say art, music, scenery, anything, talk to him about it. Enjoy it with him. If we see wonderful scenery or sunset, say, oh Lord, how wonderful it is that you could make something like that. Bring him into it, into every single situation. Constantly thank him for what he's doing and what he's showing us and what we're enjoying. And if we feel sorrow, bring him into that. Know that he feels our pain. He weeps with us. Bring him into every single situation. That's the way that we won't drift off. We'll stay centered on him. Sometimes I look back on my life and think of the different situations I've been through and I reminisce with Jesus. And I say, oh, I just remember, Lord, when we went through that and I remember when you showed me that and you said that. And I I talk with him about things we've been through Not reminding him, but reminding me that he's been with me through all of those situations. That keeps us centered. That stops us drifting. He isn't an add-on to our lives. He wants to be the whole of our lives. Everything. There's a sentence that I know I've said before, and I love it. It's, I'm living my life in Jesus. He's living his life in me. Sharing everything. With him. He shares everything of his with me. I share everything with him. When anyone, when someone does ask Jesus into their lives, there's that famous verse in Revelation 3:20. says, I will come in and will eat with him and he with me. Or my Bible, it's rather, I've got the living translation. And mine says that if we ask him in, he says, I will come in and share a meal together as friends. That's what it's all about. It's a love relationship. It's not a set of beliefs up here. It's a love relationship that he calls us into. That's where the Ephesian church went wrong. They forgot that. They're only concerned with doing the right things. It's not what we do that counts, but what we are. It's what's happening on the inside the relationship that we're building with Jesus. We're so often defined, especially at at this moment, in this world, by what we do. People say, what do you do? So if we're not doing something worthwhile, we can feel useless. And this happens especially when we're retired, and perhaps we're not doing anything particularly useful, or we don't feel we are. And so we feel, well, what use are we to anybody? But it's all about what Jesus is doing in us, what he's done for us. It's not about our lives given for Jesus and what we have done to serve him. It's about his life given for us, his amazing love for each one of us. That's what should be central. That's what matters. If Jesus lives in you, then you are a greatly loved son or daughter of the King of Kings. I wonder if you realize that. That's what you are. And nothing and no one can take that away from you. That's your identity. And all you do should flow from that sense of being loved and valued. That's the heart of the gospel. That's what causes us to worship him. And from that, to serve him. 
I want you to share something that God showed me in the middle of the night about six months ago. I was praying for somebody who used to have a very vibrant ministry all through their lives. Now, because of illness, she can't do anything. She hardly ever says anything. She still comes, still, still in church, hardly says anything. She can't minister. And you say, useless, if you take the Ephesians way of looking at it. But what God showed me, if she sits here with a heart full of love for Jesus, that is binding the enemy so he can't get in, and that's enabling us to worship. So just by being here, with her heart overflowing with love, she's actually affecting us as a church and helping us to go on. And I'd never seen it that way before. I saw it in the middle of the night, and I shared it with her on the Sunday And that means we're never, ever useless. We're not judged by what we do, but by what we are, what's happening inside. That's what counts. Now we need to see the result of worship on our everyday life. This is visual aid six, if you're with us, John. When we realize his love for us, our wavering hearts are refocused and our capacity to love grows. I read the other day an interview that Matt Redman had given. Some of you may have read it on on your smartphones. I just want to read part of it. He shared how worship has affected his everyday life, how it's helped him in his toughest moments growing up. This is what he said. My dad took his own life when I was seven years old. My mum remarried. There were a lot of tough years. Worship was a place of safety for me. I learnt early on that when you come to the throne room of God, it's not only a place of reverence, it's a place of refuge. I'd never thought of it like that before. When everything else in your world seems to be breaking, that's a place that will never change. So to sum up, true worship means that Jesus didn't save us because of what we're like, but because of what he's like. He loves us with an overwhelming love, and that causes us to respond, pouring out our love to him, and then letting his love flow to others. And our worship together here becomes real when we're caught up with the joy of his love for us. And that kind of worship shapes us for everyday life and helps us to worship him in all we do the rest of the week. I want to close with a statement that has lived in my heart for many years. It's applied to the Ephesian church, and maybe to some of us here, and it's a statement I constantly go back to. No amount of activity in the service of the king makes up for the neglect of the king himself. Just think of what that means. We can work and work and serve him and do so much and actually be neglecting him. We're here primarily not to work for him, but to enjoy him and to revel in his love for us. And everything we do should flow out of that love relationship. So don't let's be like the Ephesian church, doing things by rote as a duty. Let's be totally surrendered to him in love so that all we do brings him glory. In the words of a worship song, I love you, Lord, 
and I lift my voice to worship you. O oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my king, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Amen.